Hello, and welcome again to the Joint Heirs Podcast. We're grateful to have you along. Uh, now is uh, now we look at episode five of our Black Lives Matters podcast and uh, or, or series in our podcast, and uh, do apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. Um, as uh, many of you know, there's been some family things and uh, and other school and ministry things that have uh, caused a bit of a delay. But I'm grateful to be able to get back to you now uh, to to con- conclude our talk on. Uh, Black Lives Matters and how Christians ought to respond. Uh, In today's episode, we'll be looking at uh, God's intended role for government. Um, We'll be looking at uh, just uh, God's plan and and use of um, wealth inequality to accomplish his purposes, as well as to take a quick look, very brief look at uh, how uh, our theology, particularly Uh, how our theology of the kingdom of God influences the way that we uh, understand some of these social issues and ought to respond to some of these social issues. So I I let you know what we're going to cover in this episode just because um, this episode is going to be a longer one. If you listen to episode four, you know that that episode was very long. I do apologize for that. Um, But uh, just to, to take your time. Um, be uh, and uh, listen to this at your own pace. Come back to it if you have to, um, because uh, you know what we're going through. It's important. It's it's uh, it's helpful for us theologically just to understand what God is doing, and uh, and how that ought to shape our responses. And so, uh, because of that, uh, we need more of His grace. So we're going to begin this podcast with prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for uh, for allowing for us to be able to to study uh, Your Word and to see what it has to say. We pray that, uh, Lord, you would give me much grace. Help me to be, uh, help me to be clear. Help me to uh, be kind, to be gentle, to be uh, gracious, to represent you uh, in this podcast. And we pray that, uh, Lord, you would just give me much, much grace, and that you would give uh, the listener much grace as well. Help us, Lord, to uh, e- even if uh, even if what's some that is said is. Uh, perhaps initially offensive, uh, even if the, even if there is some offense, we pray that Lord, you would allow for uh, those who hear to be Bereans, to not just respond out of their emotions or or what they've heard other people uh, say, uh, or you know, respond how how they've um, based off of what other people have said, but may we respond uh, with a desire to really know your word well. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. The first topic that we're going to look at in this podcast is God's intended role for government. Now, obviously, we don't have time to look at all the, the different applications of, of government and, and uh, responsibilities of government, but we are looking at God's intended role for government, uh, particularly when it comes to, um, to the authority that we must uh, submit to. Now, the first thing that is absolutely essential for us to recognize is the fact that God is supposed to be the ultimate guide for us when it comes to understanding the role of government. Government ought to reflect who God is. In Genesis 1.26, God sets up Adam to be a regent king or a representative king. Um, 
It says here in Genesis 1.26 that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Adam and Eve, but primarily Adam because he was first and he, he was representative, he was supposed to act like uh, God's representative here on earth. He reigned as God's representative. It's kind of like how Caesar was the overall ruler of the Roman Empire, but he allowed for uh, for each individual region to have their own kings that would report to him. That's why we had uh, that's why we had the Herods uh, in Israel when uh, Jesus was born. Right? They operated as kings, but they were under the overall king of the Roman Empire or the the emperor of the Roman Empire. Right, so Adam is set up as the regent king. He's supposed to represent God over all creation. And that's why when Adam sinned, his sin actually spread through all the world. Because of Adam, we know this from Romans, right, because of the sin of the one man, sin spread to all the world. And it affected all the world because he was supposed to represent God. But when he failed, that sin infected everything like a virus. And that's why we need Jesus Christ to come back in and set everything right. Okay, so the original intention of God was to have Adam representing him as he reigns over all of creation. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit and we're going to look at the nation of Israel. We're going to look at the nation of Israel and we're going to look at God's intended design for the king of Israel. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, we're going to look at verses 14 to 20. Okay, Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. Um, this, uh, we, we can uh, categorize the, this particular section as the law of the king. Okay, the law of the king. And so uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 reads this. When you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, and you possess it and live in it. And you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And so what we see here is that God always planned to give Israel a king. It's not like he was going to have them be without human leaders, unlike the nations around them. However, what we see is that the king who was supposed to rule over Israel, he was supposed to be different from the kings of the nation. 
uh, verse 15 clearly tells us that the king of Israel uh, shall rule over them uh, is, is someone that God chooses. They don't get to choose, right? God chooses the king. And even in the choice of king, Israel was supposed to look to God, not the other nations, for their choice of a leader. And that's a reminder that no one in Israel is exempt from worshiping God. Just because the king is high up there doesn't mean that he can do whatever he wishes, but he must uh, submit himself first and foremost to God. And by the way, is this not a contrast to what we've seen in world history with monarchs who claim the divine right of kings? The British and, and, and French monarchs who popularized this notion of the divine right of kings would use that that right, that supposed God-given right to rule as the reason for why they were able to do whatever they wished, right? why their subjects must obey them. They were basically above the law, but that's not how the king of Israel was supposed to act because the king of Israel was supposed to represent God before the nation. The king of Israel was not supposed to be unfair, unjust, or a tyrant. Right? He was supposed to not hold himself in more regard than the people. His rule was supposed to imitate the rule of God so that his people and the people in the world could see how good God is. The king of Israel is, in a sense, supposed to be the ultimate worship leader of the nation. He was supposed to model for his people what worship should look like and lead them along the way. That is what the king of Israel was supposed to be. Right? And you notice that, that God gives this commandment to Israel while they were waiting to enter into the land. They have not entered into the land just yet. Right? They're on the doorstep of claiming the promised land. And so God says, when you get there, you're going to have a king. I'm going to give you a king. He's preparing them for what is to come. However, what we'll see later is that even though that was God's intention, for them to have a king who points them to God and who shows people what right worship looks like, this is not what the nation of Israel ultimately wanted. We see that in 1 Samuel 8. In 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel... They were, uh, they've, they've experienced the rule of the judges. Right? And for those of you who were with us for our judges series, you know how bad these judges were. Right? They were very, very sinful. They, they uh, did not honor God in a lot of what they did. And they just pointed to the need for a king. And so finally here in 1 Samuel 8, we have the people of Israel recognizing that they need a king. But here's a problem. Right? In, verse, um, in verse 5, um, they recognize that that um, they, re they they recognize that Samuel and his sons uh, were were not were not good enough. Uh, Samuel's sons were were wicked, and Samuel was getting old. And so they said in verse five, "Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations, like all the nations." God was not happy with this request. Why? Well, remember, it was not wrong for Israel to want a king. God told them that they would indeed have a king to rule over them. But the problem is their request. They wanted a king to rule over them just like the kings who ruled over the nations. The king who ruled over Israel was supposed to represent God with God still being the king 
that the king of Israel answers to. But that's not what the people wanted. They wanted a king just like everybody else. Just like everyone else. Someone who looked strong. Someone who uh, looked like he would defend the people. Someone that, peop- that the other nations would think twice about, about, uh, about crossing. Right? That's what they wanted. They wanted a king who would rule over them that would, make the other, that would look just like the other nations so that the other nations would respect them. And that did not please God because they were always supposed to look to God as king. Now, even though God was not pleased with the request of the people, he told Samuel to give them what they wanted. However, it was not without warning. He even says to them that the king whom they will set over them, he will really be like the kings of other nations. He's going to take their sons and he's going to make them their, uh, his soldiers. He's going to use their hard labors to make weapons of war and equipment. He's going to take their daughters from them and have them work as his perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He's going to tax them. He's going to take the best of their crops for himself. He's going to take the best workers for himself. Basically, what we see is that if the king of Israel was going to be like the kings of the nations, he was going to act like the kings of the nations, not like God. And that's what God warned them. He said, you're going to get what you want, but it's not exactly, but uh, what, what you thought you wanted is not exactly what you wanted uh, or what you want. God's original intention for government is for government to be a reflection of who he is. A government that glorifies God is a government that reflects his character to the people and to the nations. And unfortunately, we won't see a government that perfectly does this in this life because every government consists wholly of sinners. Every government consists wholly of sinners. Even if there are Christians in government, they're sinners. And we can't forget that. But make no mistake, no government will ever get away for the decisions that they make or how they act. They will all be held accountable to God. As you know, God will judge each individual according to their sins, no matter what job they have. Every individual in human history will have to answer to God for what they have done, small or big. No one escapes. Galatians 6, 7-10 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, Make no mistake, America is not perfect. We have our faults, just like any other nation. Our goal and desire should not to become like the other nations. That's not going to solve any of our problems. Our goal is to use what God has given us to steward, to try and be a gospel light to others in the situations that God sovereignly allows us to be in. Sometimes we forget. That the reason why these things happen in our country, the reason why some of the the chaos that exists in our country is because God sovereignly allows it to happen. He ordains for it to happen. It's not like all of a sudden God's surprised and he's like, oh no, I didn't mean for that to happen or I didn't want that to happen. 
Right? God allows for all of these things to happen. We forget. We think that he might have lost control of the steering wheel for a bit, but that's not true. God sovereignly allows for us to be in the situations that we're in. And that doesn't mean that we don't try and enact change when change needs to come. This is not a call to just sit back and let whatever happen uh, happen because God is sovereign. Our Christian brothers and sisters who came before us did not sit back and do nothing. When you, when you go back and you study history, you're going to see that Christians, that Christians were primarily behind the drive to educate people and make them literate. Why? So that they could read their Bibles. Christians were the ones who spearheaded the sciences because they wanted to understand what they saw around them. They wanted to know why everything worked the way that they did so that they could glorify God because of the wonder of everything around them. Christians were the ones who came up with the idea of what we now know as hospitals. Christians were some of the loudest voices when it came to the abolishment of the, of the African slave trade. The saints who have gone before us have shown us that we can both believe in God's sovereignty and act to address the needs that we see in society. It doesn't just happen magically. We have to act. We have to pray. And that leads us to a very familiar passage in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. Now we know that 1 Timothy is a call to prayer for all rulers and all authorities. Um, and you, you all know this passage, right? Paul is calling uh, on Christians to pray for the rulers and authorities in our world so that we may be able to live in peace and live in godliness and dignity. And each one of us is to pray to this end because verse 3 tells us that these prayers for our leaders is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And that leads to a question. How many of you pray for our political leaders? How many of you pray for their salvation? How many of you pray that God would give them wisdom? How many of you pray that these politicians would make decisions that glorify God, even if they might not know him. God can and does work through unbelievers. We've seen it in the history of our country. We've seen it in the history of the world. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you not to be given despair, no matter who gets put into presidential office. I exhort you to respect those in leadership of this city, this state, and this nation, even if you believe that what they are doing is wrong. This is something that stings a lot of us. We are not to be like the world and be given over to anger, a critical spirit, and name-calling. Do not be given over to anger, a critical spirit, and name-calling. A lot of us have to repent about that, don't we? no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Don't be like the world and be given over to apathy and indifference either. Right? In everything, in how you consume and engage on politics, in how you interact with your fellow brothers and sisters, we ought to be like Christ. This is how the people in our lives should be able to distinguish us from the people of the world. 
that no matter the issue, we try to please God in how we respond. If we know that we are to pray for our leaders, but we do not do so, or we pray in such a way that does not reflect Christ, then we are in disobedience to the Lord. I know I don't pray like I ought to in this regard. I, I don't often think about it, and I know for sure that I need to be better in this area too. We need to be praying for all in government to be safe, because God cares about them too. Anyway, there's, there's so much more that we can cover in terms of the role of government, but the, the last thing I want to do is... Um, make this whole podcast a podcast on government, right? But uh, there, there's one more thing that I want to cover in terms of the role of government, and that is uh, the God, that God gives government the sword to help maintain peace and order. Uh, God gives government the sword in order to help maintain peace and order. And because God gives government the sword as a part of his common grace to us to help restrain evil, government must be honored and respected. Now, even though Romans 1 tells us that God gave us over to our sins, it doesn't mean that he allows for evil to operate freely. It doesn't mean that everything is as evil as it could be. God restrains evil through government's authority to keep peace. And so we turn to Romans 13. Now, here in Romans 13, Paul tells the Roman believers to be subject to the governing authorities. And he tells them that they are to submit and listen to the authorities on the basis that those who have authority have been given that authority by God. Sometimes when we think about how government uh, treats us and responds to us, we're like, you have no right. But no, they actually do have a right. They've been given that right by God. If a government has been, author has been given authority and people willingly rebel against that government under nor normal circumstances, then the government acts according to their God-given authority to bring about consequences. Verse 3 reminds us of this when it says, For rulers, and this is Romans 13, verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Rulers who are committed to leading justly are not a cause of fear for good behavior. Only those who do evil have to fear just rulers. Now, skipping down to verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paul reminds us that as a result of our leaders being put in their place by God himself, that we are to render to all of them what is due to them. Right? So don't be like those who say that they can't respect governing officials no matter what political preference you have. This is something that can be incredibly hard for us to practice as Christians who live in San Francisco. But God does not give us any wiggle room here. We are to be respectful and treat those in power with honor, even if they're in sin, even if they make unwise decisions. Now, some of you might object and say, well, what about Jesus when he called Herod a fox in Luke 13, 32? Well, if you look at the text, Jesus' intent is not to insult Herod. It was a rebuke of Herod, using a metaphor to describe the kind of man that Herod was. He was a fox, pretending to be a lion, a fake king, coming after the real king. And Jesus lets the Pharisees know that Herod's no lion. 
Here it's a fox who's going to run and hide the moment that he gets in trouble. He's posing as a lion now when he's threatening to kill Jesus. But when, when, when the time comes, Herod's going to run. Now, some of you might say, well, what about Paul when he angrily spoke out against the high priest in Acts 23? Well, when you look at Acts 23, apparently Paul did not know that Ananias was high priest. Something that is very plausible since he, was, he had been traveling. And, um, and uh, when he was illegally struck in the mouth, he angrily replied against the injustice. Right? He, he immediately rebukes, uh, he rebukes Ananias for giving the order. However, notice Paul's response when he was told that Ananias was the high priest. He backs off and he repents and he submits to the law in Exodus twenty two twenty eight, which says, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul's not Jesus. When he got hit in the mouth, he lost his cool because uh, uh, being struck in the mouth uh, was a violation of Jewish law. However, he, he humbled himself and submitted himself when he realized that he was also in violation of the law, uh, when he spoke evil of Ananias. And so he adopted that posture of respect toward his leaders. So as you see, there's no room, there's no wiggle room. The two biblical exceptions that some may point to as support that allow for us to have some disrespect towards our leaders do not actually support any disrespect towards leaders. And this is something that we should be mindful of no matter which political party we prefer, no matter whether we agree with the decisions that have been made uh, in our country uh, or in our state or in our county uh, or in our city. Um, there's no wiggle room. God calls us to respect our leaders because he put them there. And that's, that's tough for us. That can be a tough pill for us to swallow. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, right, Paul wrote to an audience that was experiencing distrust and suspicion by the Roman government. But in 1 Peter 2, things have drastically changed by the time Peter writes to believers. Nero had burned down a large section of Rome to clear space for his building project. But when he saw that there was a great outcry against the fire and people were demanding justice, he quickly blame-shifted. Blame he blamed the burning of the city on Christians, and that led to a great persecution of Christians, and even the dispersion of Christians from Rome. And that is the backdrop in which Peter gives his command to the believers who had to leave Rome. Even though Nero was responsible for the upheaval in these believers' lives, uh, Peter says, to us, or to them, what would to us today be unthinkable? He says in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Notice, that it is for the Lord's sake that we submit. The word submit carries with it this idea of obedience, as if you were a soldier under a commanding officer obligated to follow orders. So we are to obey our governing authorities, whether it be the president or the governor or the mayor, who rule since they are by definition supposed to punish evildoers and commend those who do right. Remember, that's what they are supposed to be doing. This is what God 
uh, has ordained them to do. Now, let's look at verse 15. Okay, verse 15 of 1 Peter 2. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Back in verse 12, Peter reminds believers that they are to keep their behavior excellent among Gentiles so that the slander that was going around would not only be discredited, but would also point people to who God is. Verse 15 tells us that this excellent behavior that Christians have extends to submission to government authorities. And so if there was, uh, you know, looking at the history, the historical context. If anyone was the target of Roman authorities as a result of persecution, um, their endurance uh, of persecution as trial would be for their benefit. It was God's way of growing them and stretching them in their faith. And verse 19 confirms this as those who are suffering uh, under those who are unreasonable are said to find favor when they choose to endure sorrows in order to please God. Those who choose to endure sorrows in order to please God will find favor with God. However, what we see in verse 20 is that there is no credit, there is no benefit for people to patiently endure punishment if that punishment is for, uh, to endure punishment for sin. Right? That's not trial. That's not, that's not enduring sorrows in order to please God. That's punishment for sin. That's discipline for bad behavior, discipline for breaking the law. Christians ought to always strive to obey government in areas where the government is not asking us to sin. Right? Um, we are always to obey the government in areas where the government is not asking us to sin. Um, now, you know, we can talk about some civil disobedience stuff later. Um, that's kind of another conversation. But um, what we're seeing here is that unless it's sin, uh, we ought to be... Uh, we ought to be obeying the government. Right? This doesn't apply. And we'll talk, we won't talk about how this applies to coronavirus, okay? But what we're talking about here is when it comes to uh, justice in the land, okay? Even if what we are being asked to do may seem to be unreasonable or unfair, we should still strive to obey unless there is good reason for us not to obey. If what the government is asking you to do or, or it's doing is clearly sin, then Peter and John's example in Acts 4 is instructive for us. We cannot do what we know is disobedience to God. We cannot do what we know is sin before God in order to honor the government. And for that matter, we cannot do what we know is sin to keep friends, to please bosses, or whatever the case may be. God calls us to obey Him first and foremost. Now, if because of a government's actions, we must choose to respond with civil disobedience. You may, you may be doing what is right before God, uh, but uh, you have to be prepared to suffer the consequences. It is called civil disobedience for a reason. You'll recall that in Daniel, Daniel and his three friends chose to disobey Nebuchadnezzar's demand that they pray to him uh, in order to... Um, uh, in order to please God. And they were willing to face the consequences. They were willing to die in order to honor the Lord. They did not complain about the process or call it unfair. They knew 
what the consequences were for standing for righteousness would be, and they gladly accepted it. If you believe that civil disobedience is necessary because the government is asking you to do something that is clear sin, you may disobey. But you must also readily and willingly accept the consequences, knowing that they have the right to punish. Many of you don't know this, but a a very prominent pastor, uh, the the pastor who uh, was uh, the president of my college and seminary, uh, was arrested for his participation in the demonstrations for civil rights. He stood in line with those who were protesting for civil rights, and he was arrested for it. And he has the arrest record because of it. right? But that's rightly deserved. He was disobeying, but he was standing up for what was right. And so, if you disobey, the consequences uh, are, are there. And, and um, that's, that's something that we have to recognize, is that sometimes we do have to stand up for what is right by disobeying, but we shouldn't complain about the consequences. Because we know that what we were doing was standing up for what's right. Now, skip down to verses 21 and 25. Okay. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Because Christ left us an example of suffering, we willingly follow in his example, not returning any insult towards us to those who persecute us, but entrusting ourselves to God who judges righteously. Brothers and sisters, please remember that God is not mocked. We may have the right narrative for some of the injustices that we have seen, but we may also be missing some context, some key context. The Lord knows what is in the heart of man, and regardless of what happens, no one will get away with sin. And when the government acts like God intended for them to act, they are supposed to represent him as instruments who uphold justice and righteousness. And as a result, they also are responsible before God to rule righteously. However, when government fails to fulfill their God-given role, yes, there may be suffering. Yes, there will be injustice. But God sovereignly ordains all of that too to remind us that our hope was never supposed to be in government. Human government, though it may have its bright spots, is imperfect because of sin. And so when they fail, individually and as a whole, they will all be held accountable by God. And that accountability is not something to be considered lightly. Okay. If you think that accountability by God is something to be considered lightly, fear God, because that is not something that you want. Okay. We're going to end our discussion on the role of government in these conflicts here. There's so much more we can cover when it comes to the role of government, uh, but uh, we just don't have the time for that. Okay. So now we're going to quickly move over to why is there differences in social class 
uh, or structure or uh, income. Now, why are there differences in income? Well, um, not um, um, the differences don't exist because being poor is a result of sin. And we know that from John 9 and Luke 13. Uh, in, jo in John 9, we're talking about the man uh, who, who was born lame. In Luke 13, we're talking about the, the people who were, were killed um, because the tower fell on them. Just because someone sins doesn't mean that they naturally get bad uh, that they naturally get bad consequences that they're saddled with for the rest of their lives, right? So just because someone sinned, uh, someone's parents sinned, doesn't doesn't mean that that's the reason why people are poor. It could, it could have an effect, but it doesn't mean that that's why God allows for certain people to be poor. Sometimes we do adopt bad theology and think that if something bad happened then it must be because of sin. I must have done something, and God is punishing me for it. Um, that's not always the case. For those who are without God, they probably won't think that differences in social standing or income, uh, uh, um, or income is a result of sin. But we are seeing right now, especially among those who are clamoring for reparations, um, is that that these differences, they are, they are and can be a result of sinful inequality, right? Differences, uh, or at least this is what they're saying, right? Uh, that, that's what they're saying. Um, they won't recognize it as sin. They won't claim it's sin, but they're saying that, um, that income inequality is a result of sinful partiality. Excuse me. Uh, I, think, I think I said sinful inequality earlier. Um, right? So they're basically saying, um, this income inequality is a result of racism, partiality. Differences are a, a result of privilege, particularly white privilege, or perhaps privilege that comes from being non-black. That is what they are saying is the problem. My brothers and sisters, biblically, the argument that income inequality is a result of privilege is indefensible. And before you get upset and tune me out, let me explain. Okay, and, and please do not take what I just said as a denial that there has been sinful partiality, uh, that there has not been sinful partiality against those of different ethnic backgrounds. We have all seen in our history classes how our country, though it is a cultural melting pot and generally accepting of, of new cultures, has committed many acts of sinful partiality in its young history. In, a different, in addition to our participation in the truly horrific African slave trade, this country has notably discriminated against Native Americans, people of Irish descent, the Japanese, the Vietnamese, Chinese, and those of Hispanic descent. In our fear following 9-11, there were many reports of hate crimes for those um, who either were or appeared to be of Muslim background or Islamic background. And I am by no means ignoring or denying that any of these unrighteous actions have occurred, either directly as a result of government action or out of sinful fear reaction to current events. I can't. It's in my family's personal history. I've had people who were on Angel Island in my family. So I'm not denying that this country has acted in sinful partiality. But no matter how much we pretend that we've moved beyond uh, that partiality ourselves, no matter how much we deny that we give preference to certain people rather than others, we are all subject to sinful partiality because our hearts are inclined towards sin. Maybe you're not a racist, but if you have a particular friend group that you love and you exclude people purposely from your friend group, that's partiality. 
right? And it doesn't even have to come down to friend group. It can come down to who you prefer to talk to, who you choose not to talk to. We show partiality all the time. It can be on the basis of our ethnicity, our political preferences, entertainment preferences, and more. None of us, none of us are blameless and innocent here. We all have sin to repent of when it comes to partiality. Now, that being said, when it comes to income inequality, the cause of income inequality is so much more complex than ethnic partiality. It is so much more than ethnic partiality. Now, even if we were to acknowledge that there are residual effects from redlining, even after it was deemed illegal, to say that people suffer from in uh, income inequality solely on the basis of ethnicity is simplistic and intellectually dishonest. There are many reasons and factors that contribute to the difference in income in different cities and in different neighborhoods, but without going into great greater depth as to all the possible reasons why inequality exists, all the possible reasons why some people are in financial trouble and some people are financially healthy. Let's think about this from a theological standpoint. The mere fact that some people have more than others is not, in fact, a violation of anything taught in Scripture. God, in His sovereignty, has ordained that there will be some with much and there will be some who have little. The difference is that we see, or that we may have when it comes to the rich and the poor, is not purely a result of sin. God has allowed it to highlight his mercy, his grace, and his compassion. In Leviticus 5, God reveals what the cost of covering the guilt earned by sin is. Sin isn't cheap. It required um, pricey animal sacrifices. And God acknowledged that some would not be able to pay the full price required to govern guilt, which is why God allows for those who cannot afford the sacrifice of a goat to offer a sacrifice that he can afford. Some of it was a turtle dove. Some of it uh, was other animals. Right, it still wasn't cheap, but it was still more affordable for the poor man. God could have made it free. He could have said, oh, if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. But that's not the case, right? It needs to cost you something. It needs to cost you something because sin is an infinite offense against an infinite God. And so it needs to cost you something. Someone's life must die for sin. And because God sovereignly ordains for differences to exist in who has much and who has little, he doesn't prescribe a change in the law and says, well, if you can't afford it, it's free. No, rather, he makes provision for those differences so that the world can see what a people who worship him ought to look like. He, he shows them uh, that we are understanding. He wants the world to see that we're understanding, that there is a high cost, there's a high calling to, to what we're called to, but we pay it right? and, and we, we adjust there is flexibility that is there. And in Leviticus 10, 13 to 16, God makes it very clear. He makes it very clear that the rich and powerful in Israel were not to behave like the rich and powerful of other nations. Whereas the rich and powerful of other nations would try and take advantage of their countrymen, uh, countrymen because of their lack of finances and power, God prohibits prohibits this type of action against those who cannot help themselves. You cannot defraud. You cannot withhold wages. Uh, you, have to, 
you have to uh, judge rightly. You have to treat your fellow countrymen with respect. Why? Because you're supposed to imitate God in the way that you treat people who are uh, who have less than you. So what we see is that God allows for his people to experience differences in income as a part of his good plan for all. For those who have much, it's an opportunity for people to serve others with the wealth that God has given them. For those who have little, it's an opportunity for people to learn to trust in the Lord who provides for them. Remember Matthew um, Matthew 6, right? Uh, if the, the cure to anxiety is to trust in the Lord. If he cares for the, the uh, birds of the field and, and the lilies, uh, or the birds of the sky and the lilies of um, the lilies of the field, will he not care for you who are so much more than them? Proverbs nineteen seventeen says that the rich who are gracious to the poor, their services to the Lord, they lend to the Lord, they perform their act of generosity to the Lord God. Yes, it's to the poor, right? But it's ultimately to the Lord, and God honors those who are generous to the poor. Proverbs 22, verse 2 and verse 9. God makes both the rich and the poor. Right? That's astounding. God makes both the rich and the poor. Those who are rich were meant to have concern for those who are poor. And that concern, concern leads to blessing. Right? But God sovereignly ordained for some to be rich and some to be poor. He made both of them. One is not higher than the other. He made both of them. In Luke 14, 13 to 14, Jesus reminds people who were striving to secure for themselves position of honor at a feast that they should be humble, that they should be generous. And instead of trying to, uh, to get the attention of the host to try and get some favors in return, that their kindness, their generosity should not just be shown to people who can, uh, who, who can essentially pay them back, Right, but they, they should desire to care for those who might not be able to reciprocate. In James 2.6, James tells the people in, uh, in, the, in the church that the ones who show partiality against the poor man, dishon- uh, against the poor, dishonors the poor man. And when people show partiality to the rich on the basis that they are rich, they're actually guilty of sin. And strangely, they're only showing kindness to the ones who at that time were doing them harm. Right? We've seen that. When someone rich and powerful comes in the room, people fall all over themselves to try and, uh, and, and accommodate for them. Uh, and, and that's not what we ought to do. Right? We, we, kick, we kick people out uh, of, their, uh, of, of their positions so that we can try and uh, so that we can try and gain favor for them. And what James 2 says is that 2 6 says is that that is partiality. That dishonors the poor man. Uh, in, in Matthew 26, 11, um, and you, know, you have other parallel accounts as well, what we have is the uh, indignant responses uh, or objections of the disciples to the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with costly perfume. What was their objection? They said, oh man, what a waste. You put that costly perfume on Jesus' feet, you put it on the floor, we could have sold that, we could have given money to the poor. And Jesus says to them, they will always have the poor with them, but they will not always have him. And, and what he's, he's saying to them, right? he's, he's, not, he's not callously saying, like, who cares about the poor? Jesus is not saying that. 
Okay, rather, what he wants the disciples to do is to refocus their attention on the significance of the honor and love that this lady showed Jesus, knowing that he was going to the cross soon. Ministry to the poor is an important ministry because it shows God's compassion to those who have less. But what Jesus reminds his disciples here is that gospel ministry is not just about the money. It's not just about uh, about uh, meeting physical needs, but it is primarily about making Christ known to all. And this is where a lot of people, a lot of organizations can kind of get in trouble is when they make the elevation of, min- of the ministry of meeting needs more important than the gospel, that's when we have a problem because the gospel is first and foremost. But as we preach the gospel, we also care for physical needs, right? But it's not the other way around. It's not that the gospel is bonus. The gospel is primary. Now, the whole point of this section of our podcast is to help us recognize that God sovereignly allows for income inequality to exist in the world, to point to the greater need of all people to put their faith in Christ. For those who are rich, what we have seen in the scriptures, particularly in the parable of the rich young man and Lazarus, that need uh, that's there uh, for, for people to understand is that your riches will ultimately get you nowhere. Without Christ, you will lose not only your life, you will lose your soul. You're going to be judged uh, for your sins for all eternity if you do not love Christ. If you do not repent of your sins and love Christ. For those who are poor, the scriptures have shown us that God indeed has compassion to those who are poor and he faithfully provides for all of their needs. And even though, even though they might not have much in this life, even if they are going to have little for their entire lives. Those who place their faith in Christ will receive the greatest treasure they could ever have when they are in Christ. Now, hear me when I say that we are not unsympathetic to those who do not have much. We want to show them love. We want to show them compassion. Not because we want to ease our sense of guilt or make someone else more comfortable in their lives, but because we want to show them the God who loves them. And we want to show them the God who motivates our love and our compassion. Be careful, brothers and sisters, of falling into the trap of believing that income inequality is the most important thing to God. God has never con- never been concerned with wealth equality. In Acts 4, the fact that the church banded together to meet all the needs of those who were a part of it was the testimony to the world that the power of God causes strangers to have love and concern for one another because they are one. It was not an argument for a socialist form of government or society, but was instead a powerful picture of how God causes the rich, the poor, the Jew, the Gentile, the free, and the slave to be unified together in the body of Christ. Acts 4 shows the power of unity in the body of Christ. And when the church cares for those who do not have much, the question the world ought to be asking is, what motivates the church to care for those who are poor in such a unique way? Other organizations may be able to imitate the church in the care for those who are poor, 
And it is for this reason that the church needs to do so much more than just give money to causes. Anyone can write a check and give money. How does the church differentiate ourselves in our care for one another so that the world cannot help but ask the right question, why does the church care for the poor and one another in such a drastic way? Why are they different? And that's the question we're trying to get the rest of the world to ask. Okay, now I don't want to get crazy with this next part. This next part, we're going to be talking about the theology of the kingdom and how the theology of the kingdom affects our understanding of racial, racial justice. So I'm going to be trying to be as brief as I can. It's still going to be a little long, but I'm going to try to be, be brief and simple. We know that Jesus is presently reigning at the right hand of the Father, waiting to judge sinners for their sins and make all things right again. And while we are waiting for Jesus to establish his kingdom, it is our responsibility as kingdom citizens to represent our coming king. And this means that we are to function as God's ambassadors and representatives here on this earth. However, we have to be really careful, really, really careful about assuming that all of that responsibility, or uh, sorry, we, we have to be careful about assuming that the responsibility to usher the kingdom of God in falls on us. We have to be careful about assuming that we are responsible for establishing the kingdom of God. There are godly brothers and sisters some of them prominent pastors who have said that it is our responsibility to usher in the kingdom of God, to protect the kingdom of God. But that is not our responsibility. God himself will establish his kingdom here on earth during Christ's second coming. We proclaim the coming of the kingdom. We proclaim that people can be saved from their sins through faith in Jesus Christ. But the advancement of the kingdom does not depend upon us. And what I mean by that statement is that if you and I personally fail to be as evangelistic as we could be, this does not mean that God will thus shut out people from heaven who could have gone to heaven if we had otherwise spoken up and proclaimed the gospel. God will save those who he has already predetermined to save. And since we don't know who those people may be, we urgently proclaim the gospel to as many people as we can. But what we recognize is the Lord God builds his church. We may be the instruments through whom he builds his church, but he is the builder, not us. Right? He's going to get the gospel out there. He's going to build his kingdom. And you may wonder why this is a relevant uh, this is why this is relevant to a discussion on racial justice. Well, I bring this topic up. Uh, I bring the topic of God's sovereignty and salvation up because I've heard good and godly brothers and sisters say that if we care about the coming of the kingdom and the continuing advancement of the kingdom on this world, then we need to protect the vision of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising God in Revelation 7 by caring about racial justice. They're saying that if we care about the kingdom advancing, that we need to care about racial justice. Please do not take 
what I just said as a statement that says that racial justice is not important to God. I am not saying that getting rid of all forms of prejudice and partiality is unimportant. It is important because God is the God of justice and peace. All who sin will be judged according to their sins before God unless they repent of their sins, in which case Jesus paid for the penalty for their sins. But what our brothers and sisters in Christ get wrong here when they say that racial justice is going to be the thing uh, is the thing that we need to defeat in order to advance the kingdom is that uh, they, what they get wrong here is that um, that that standing up for racial justice is going to be the thing that brings the kingdom about or or the fact that because the kingdom is breaking into this world that that's the reason why we have to show people the difference the kingdom is not currently breaking into the world it's not like it's leaking out of heaven the kingdom will be established when Christ comes. We are his representatives here on earth to show people a preview of what the kingdom is, but it's not like it's leaking out into society slowly and the more that we the more good that we do, uh, eventually the kingdom will come and establish itself. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Right? It's, it, and you know what? It is important for us to stand up for what is right. Okay, I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand up for what is right. We should stand up for what is right. We should show the world the righteousness of God and the compassion of God. But you do not do that by supporting Black Lives Matters as an organization. You do so by repenting of any partiality you may have and trying to love people like Christ loved them. You do so by allowing for your acts of love and kindness to be a conversation starter about the gospel. The gospel alone will be the thing that tr brings true peace, true reconciliation, and true unity to this world. The gospel will be the thing that heals all wounds because in Christ, he will heal all wounds. There will be, as we see in Revelation, healing for all the nations. It'll be in the trees. And God himself will be the one who brings healing to all the nations. And he will provide so in the new heavens and new earth. We can't fix that here. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for that, okay? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that you cannot rush that. We can't bring that here. That's God, God's work. That's what God will do, right? Even if churches, even if churches were, were able to all get rid of any partiality that they may have had in their messaging uh, and, and their, their proclaiming of, of the gospel, don't be deceived. Right? Even if we can say, hey, we're with you. We're with you in this. Don't be deceived. The world is not all of a sudden going to say, hey, look, the church values, <laughs> the church values anti-racism. The church understands what we're talking about. They understand what this whole unity, unity thing is about. We should go to church because they care about racial justice. Don't be mistaken. They're not going to think that. They're not going to be impressed by our stance for racial justice. Unsaved African Americans will not suddenly be won over to Christ because the church stands up for Black Lives Matters. The world won't be impressed because they're trying to get the church to accept their message. 
They are preaching to us. And they're asking for us to believe what they say and change as a result. They're not going to be happy with our acceptance of Black Lives Matters in the church. They're going to say, what took you so long? It's 2020. Get with the program. And by the way, get with the rest of the program and our agenda too. The people who belong to the kingdom of God will not believe in the gospel through people in the church sounding the bell for Black Lives Matters. If the people of the world see the church sounding the bell for Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matters, they're just going to reflect Romans 1 just as they always have. The majority of them will continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness just as they always have. What brings people into the kingdom of God is the Spirit of God working in the hearts of those who are unsaved. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates hearts so that these hearts, which are spiritually dead, can hear the gospel, repent of their sins, and believe in Jesus Christ. As we learned through the fourth podcast in the BLM series, God's salvation plan is supposed to be for all people. There is no partiality with God. He doesn't prefer one people group over another. All who repent and believe are welcomed by Him. And if we understand that God builds His church, as Jesus said in Matthew 16, then the kingdom does not need our acceptance of BLM in order to grow. God will grow His church. God will help those who are his to realize their need for repentance as they hear the gospel message. Clever speech or apologetic arguments are not the primary means by which the gospel goes to all the earth. It primarily goes forth through the proclamation of the gospel to all. It's proclamation in the church, proclamation in the home, proclamation in the street, proclamation in the coffee shops. The gospel goes forth through proclamation. It does not go forth because we decided that we need to look like the world in order to gain an audience with the world. Let me repeat that. The gospel does not go forth because we look like the world in order to gain an audience with the world. The prophet Jeremiah went his entire ministry proclaiming the word of God to the nation of Israel, and God told him from the very beginning that no one would listen to him. Regardless of the fact that no one will listen to him, God told Jeremiah that his mission was to proclaim his message to the people. So, brothers and sisters, don't get sidetracked. Your job here on earth is to, is to do what God wants you to do, is to obey God and to be faithful to represent him and proclaim the good news of the gospel wherever you go. And now we turn to application. How should Christians respond to social justice? Well, the world solution um, at this time is basically this. Look inward. Repent of bias and unconscious racist, thought, racist thoughts. Listen. Be an advocate. Increase in love. Educate yourself. That sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds really good. But what it begins to look like and sound like is the gospel. It sounds like the gospel, except it is not the true gospel. There is no hope. There is no repentance. There's no true repentance anyway. There is only penance. You have to try and continually earn favor. For those who are not black, the message of Black Lives Matters and, and others who are championing its cause is that if you're not black, you're a sinner, especially if you're white because you're a privileged racist. 
And the only way that you can grow and change is if you repent of your racism and you stand aside so that black people can reclaim what was denied them all these years. And there is no hope for you. You're white. Can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about the color of your skin. So all you, so the only thing that you can do is just stand aside and let black people take their place, right? And the majority of us who are not who are not black, well, uh, if we've not experienced this, uh, if we've not experienced uh, any kind of persecution or um, we haven't experienced the same level of of um, of partiality as as black people we're part of the problem too that's what we're being told that's the message of the blm gospel there's no hope for this world there's no desire for genuine unity in humanity there is uh, a desire there isn't really even a desire for equalization by force what is a desire is partiality it's for the elevation of all black lives and no one else. They say that they'll stand that that uh, that what they want is the is the uh, equality for black people, and then uh, for everyone else it, it comes later. But that that's not what they really want. They want promise. They want reparations. At least some of them do. Okay, we have to be careful about overgeneralizing. But this desire, it denies that God could have, could possibly have a plan for inequality. It denies that God has any part of the solution at all. And so, brothers and sisters, you can stand up for what is right. You can understand the plight of some, and I emphasize some of our African-American brothers and sisters uh, and what they endure may endure in this life because of the color of their skin. You can grieve with them. You can push for righteousness and justice without accepting the language, beliefs, and claims of the movement. I know that some of you, uh, in response to the, to uh, what happened to George Floyd, you decided to uh, to watch as many movies as you can, read as many books as you can, and that's good. That's great. I think that we, as a church, we should always make sure that we are aware of other cultures and, and what's going on with other people, because not everyone is like us, right? And even for people who do look like us, there are differences. Differences in how we're raised. Differences in in uh, what we've experienced in life. There are differences. We need to be able to get on eye level with one another and enter into each other's world. We need to do that. We need to do that so that we can minister to one another well, so that we can truly love one another and understand each other. But that understanding does not come apart from the gospel because God is the ultimate solution. God is the ultimate solution. The gospel solution is so stark in contrast to the message of, of Black Lives Matters. We, we call for all to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved, to, for all to love God and to love one another. Now, you, you notice that love one another is in both solutions, in the world solution and in, our, and in the gospel solution. But you don't know how to truly love other people if you don't know God's love. Right? Because the love that the world has for each other is worldly. It's superficial. It's love that that basically loves me the way I want to be loved, right? or, or helps make me more comfortable. Right? But that kind of love doesn't actually help anyone. You just make them more comfortable on their way to hell. And someone has said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right? Just loving someone by doing 
uh, good towards them or, or giving money to them doesn't necessarily point them to the gospel. Right? If a church bows the knee and uh, supports Black Lives Matter, it doesn't, in fact, open the door for more gospel. It doesn't. It perpetuates this idea that they don't need God, they just need equality. If you truly love people, if you truly love those who are hurting in this world, then you must point them to the gospel with urgency and with passion. Right? If true if true justice, if true peace, true, um, true righteousness is found in God alone, then we need to be urgently pointing people to Christ and say, believe in Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. James 4.17 reminds us that if you know what God calls you to do in obedience and faithfulness to Him, and you do not do it, it is sin. God's not going to excuse us for not doing what's right just because nobody else joined you or because you were afraid. Sure, it's easier to evangelize and serve with others. Um, but if nobody goes with you, if no one shares that same passion as you, don't let that intimidate you. Do what is right before God. Be an ambassador of Him to the culture, whether that's in your workplace, whether that's in your community, whether that's in your church. Do what is right. Be an ambassador of God at all times. Don't take on the culture. Don't adopt it in order to minister to it, but stand up to it, confront it. Sure, we can acknowledge where we have been wrong and where we have failed, and that's where there is much forgiveness and grace. But we are constantly pointing people to the fact that there is hope. Right? That there is hope. We, and we don't point them to um, the hope of perfect justice and righteousness in the here and now, because we know that the sinfulness of mankind will never allow that to happen. The only solution is Jesus Christ. He is going to come back and he is going to make things right. That slogan, no justice, no peace, is not something that honors God. It displeases him because he is the God of justice and peace. James 1, 19 to 20 reminds us that everyone, Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because the unrighteous anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And so be careful of how you respond to the news, brothers and sisters. If you are unwise and you, and, 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 if, and you speak rashly before we see all the details, you put your, yourself at risk of angrily, sinfully responding in ignorance. Be careful and trust these incidents to God. Remember that even if justice fails here on this earth, God is not mocked. He knows the truth and he will judge. Christians ought to respond with compassion, but we ultimately ought to respond by desiring to bring the true hope of the gospel to those who desperately need to hear the gospel. Voting will not produce the hope that lasts, right? If voting our president and other government officials out of office will not produce a hope that lasts or satisfies. Political leaders come and go, and that changes our lives a little bit, but new ones will come and replace the ones that we elect. And even if we were able to vote people out of office, guess what? Guess what? Your hope was bound up 
in politics. It was bound up in man and your hope will fade. Your hope will be disappointed because you put your hope in the wrong thing. You put your hope in something that we were never meant to put our hope in. We were always supposed to put our hope in the Lord God. He alone has the solution to our biggest problem. Sin is the problem, not racism, not income inequality. All of uh, all of a sudden, we have people who once denied that man is, is uh, inherently evil, saying that man is inherently good, saying that, oh, no, man is evil. And that evil is racism and privilege. We know better. We know better. Man inherited our sin nature from Adam, and that is the undergirding problem of all of life. Sin. Any other answer is woefully insufficient. The only hope to true unity is found in Christ because we know from Ephesians 2 that Christ came to preach the gospel to those who are near and those who are far off and he unifies us all in himself. Therefore, we as a church must respond differently so that we can point other people back to God. Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8, and Psalm 117 are all passages in the Old Testament that show how God intended for Israel to be a witness to the world of God's worthiness to be praised through their righteousness. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests that pointed the world to Yahweh so that all the peoples of the earth would worship Yahweh. There is no partiality with God. He uses that small nation of Israel that is centrally located in the Middle East to draw attention to the fact that he reigns. And he reigns with love, justice, mercy, grace, and peace. And while we're not Israel, we're grafted into Israel. We get to share in their promises. And we as a church, we, we, we get to participate in their role together when we gather or when we meet together, we point people to the fact that God must be worshipped, that God must be praised. The world is lost in their sin, and they are all in danger of experiencing the wrath of God against unrighteousness. However, there is good news. And the good news is not that if we try hard enough, we will be able to achieve a righteous and fair society if we reform and re-educate enough people or if we elevate enough people of color into, uh, into leadership. That is not the good news. And the good news is not that the politicians of our choice are either able to take the White House or maintain their hold on the White House. That is not the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son so that whoever may believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And everlasting life is this, that people know God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. When we were still sinners, dead in our sins, and enemies of God, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Through God's grace, every person who hears the gospel message, repents of their sins, and believes in Jesus Christ are saved from their sins. We, as a church, are a profound form of witness that uses our collective witness to tell the world that the gospel works, that God is not a liar. He tells the truth. And true peace and righteousness are possible through Him. If you want righteousness, if you want peace, you can't find it in the world. You can only find it in God. He's going to be the one who makes all things right. 
And we need to point to him. We need to trust in him. I know that there's so much more. I'm, I'm sure that there are going to be other questions and, and whatnot um, that come up as a result of this. And, and that's okay. Uh, we're going to have our Q&A uh, with, uh, with me and Pastor Ray um, soon. So be on the lookout for that. Um, but brothers and sisters, we, we can't forget what we're here for. We're here to proclaim the message of the gospel to others. So let's not, let's not get lost. Let's remember what we're here for. We're here to proclaim Christ. Everyone needs to hear Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't matter whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Chinese, whether you're uh, Vietnamese, whether you're Japanese or uh, any other ethnicity. It doesn't matter. Everyone needs the gospel. We are the ones who look at what's broken and we say, and we grieve at what's broken, but we say, there's hope. There's hope in the gospel alone. And that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to point people to. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for how your word shows us the only way to true peace. And that way is through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are so grateful that you had mercy on us. That even though we were sinners, even though we were your enemies, you decided to show us your love and your compassion. That you were the ones who, who awakened our spiritually dead hearts so that we could not only hear the gospel, but believe it. We pray, Father, that you would glorify yourself in our lives as we strive to show other people through our genuine Christian living how much difference you can make in a life. Help us, Lord, to truly be Christians, to truly be like Christ, so that when the world sees us, when the world sees our testimony, when they see our actions, that they can say, we need what you have. We need Jesus. Father, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done here on this earth. We pray for Christ's quick return. But we also pray that you help us to be faithful until he does return. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.